In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. On this fourth and final Sunday of the season of Advent, it is appropriate for us to resume one last time the purpose of this holy season of anticipation and joyful preparation for the commemoration of our Savior's birth at Bethlehem. Many spiritual and mystical authors have related the stages of the spiritual life to the stages of the liturgical year of our Holy Mother Church. These same authors astutely point out that every year we cyclically relive the mysteries of salvation, and these mysteries are connected to the stages and ages of our spiritual growth. Our Mother, the Holy Mother Church, does this pedagogically because all of us need again and again to relive and to continuously strive to achieve perfection in our spiritual lives. The spiritual life is not a one-and-done deal. It is something which requires constant maintenance and constant re-edification, if you will. The edifice of the spiritual life is not once constructed to be left like the Egyptian pyramids in the sand and the dust to endure for many thousands of years without any attention. The spiritual edifice requires constant upkeep if it is to maintain its, its health and its integrity. Therefore, beginners in the spiritual life are called to enter what is called the purgative way. The purgative way, which coincides with Advent, is a time when we strive to enter into, when we are born to the spiritual life, when we strive to grow in perfection. And Advent is a particularly well-suited time for this, for reasons that I will explain in a few moments. In Lent, we enter what's called the illuminative way, which is the next stage of the spiritual life when Christ leads us to greater heights and greater depths of spiritual maturity, when we grow in understanding of him. We do this primarily in Lent, uh, the illuminative way, because of the, the great doctrine that is contained in the liturgy of Holy Mother Church and in the greater efforts that we take to imitate Christ in his own um, public ministry and his combat with Satan. And finally, after Easter, from Easter until the end of the liturgical year, this corresponds with what's called the unitive way, when the soul is called to great union with God and enjoying the fruit of the incarnation and the redemption, the fruit which we will one day hopefully enjoy in the most perfect way, face to face with God in eternal life. Advent is a time of purgation. Now, why is this? We would spontaneously be um, more naturally think of Lent as a time of purgation, of penance, and of mortification. And it is, indeed. In Lent, we are obliged by Holy Mother Church to do acts of penance. It is a time of penance par excellence. But Advent is a time of purgation. And this is because purgation has to be understood in a very broad sense. Purgation isn't simply doing random acts of penance in order to mortify ourselves. Purgation is emptying our hearts, creating an empty space in our hearts so that they may receive the indwelling of Christ who is born into our hearts by grace. If we do not empty our hearts, if we are already full, 
then Christ will have no room in which to be born into our hearts in this season of grace, in this season that commemorates and also contains the graces of Christ's his birth, the incarnation of Christ our Lord. In the Gospels, we read that Mary and Joseph had to lay the newborn babe, Jesus, in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We don't get a lot more than that from the evangelist, but we do read that there was no place for them in the inn. This was not related to us by the inspired author as a superfluous detail, but rather for our instruction. It's to instruct us that Christ is willing and able to be born into the hearts of men on the condition that those men make room for him in their hearts. Advent is a time to take the pulse, so to speak, of our spiritual lives. Even those who have achieved great heights in the spiritual life are at risk, constant risk, of falling into the great spiritual malady, the great spiritual sickness, of lukewarmness, of tepidity. Familiarity breeds contempt, the old adage tells us, and it's full of wisdom. When we are familiar with Christ, when we take his friendship for granted, when we become accustomed to our spiritual practices and exercises, we can go through them with a sort of mechanical uh, routine. And this routine is the enemy of fervor and the enemy of progress, both of which are necessary if our spiritual lives are to prosper according to God's desire for us. God is ready and willing to raise up great saints in the church. It is only a question of whether those potential saints are willing to correspond with God's plan for them. So Advent is a time to ask ourselves whether or not we have not grown lukewarm, whether or not we have taken for granted some of what God has given us, whether or not we ourselves are not full of concerns that concern only this world and negligent about things concerning the next world. A good way to determine this objectively, because no one is his own judge, nemo eudex causam suam, no one is the judge of his own cause, is by looking at how we deal with sin. Sin, clearly mortal sin, cuts us off from God's friendship and damns us for eternity if it is not repented of. But we shouldn't only consider mortal sin, because those who are content to simply avoid all mortal sin and check the box of going to Mass on Sunday can hardly be called those friends of Christ who are striving to achieve perfection. The very least these people can do is to admit to themselves and to others, especially to Almighty God, that they are trying to do the very minimum in existence and that they take very much for granted the graces which Jesus Christ purchased for them by his death on the cross. They consider religion a burden, and they consider it one which they use, and they go through the motions to the very minimal extent possible so as to not inconvenience what they consider the most important thing in existence, which is their worldly lives. These are worldly people. They mind the things of the earth, and the things of heaven to them are a burden. These people need to be encouraged to die more to themselves and to abandon mortal sin completely, to consider how great a price their salvation was purchased at. But we're considering today those who actually wish to grow in perfection, 
to grow in the imitation of Jesus Christ who died for them. For these people, the objective measure will be to say, how often do I commit deliberate venial sin? Deliberate venial sin. The just man falls seven times a day. Sacred scripture tells us as much. But the just man does not fall seven times a day deliberately. There is a difference, a very great difference between a sin which is through surprise, through weakness, through passion, or through deliberation. Do I ever commit deliberate venial sin? If so, it is a very good sign that I am growing tepid and lukewarm in my relationship with Christ. And why is this? It is because every single sin which is committed contributes to the agony of Jesus Christ, the agony that he suffered for you and for me. And therefore, if I commit a sin deliberately, it's like bargaining with heavenly treasure, with the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us in the Passion. It's like using that as a bargaining chip to gain temporal advantage. If I do this, for example, if I choose to tell a deliberate lie, granted it may not be a mortal sin, but nevertheless I consider the price of Jesus' blood to be less than the advantage I gain from telling this deliberate lie, no matter how much convenience it achieves for me. Or if I am a glutton, if I overeat, this is not usually a mortal sin. It's only a mortal sin if I gravely endanger my health. But nevertheless, if I do so deliberately and knowingly, it's like looking at Jesus Christ hanging on the cross in the eyes and choosing to, if not spit on him, which would maybe be a mortal sin, to turn my back, to say, well, Jesus, that, that's fine. I'm going to enjoy my hamburger while you hang on the cross. This is a very, very sad, a very selfish, and a very effeminate attitude to have. It betrays a weakness and a selfishness of soul, which is unbecoming in any Christian. And unfortunately, you and I are probably guilty to greater or lesser degrees of this type of attitude. It is all too easy for us to bargain with venial sin, because we know it's ultimately not that big of a deal. I can criticize so-and-so just a little bit. A little bit of bad-mouthing isn't a big deal. I won't go to hell for it. You won't go to hell for it, but Jesus Christ will be in greater agony for it, for your sake. I can eat a little bit too much because it's not a big deal. It's only a venial sin. Well, it's not, a, it's not a big deal except for Jesus Christ who died and thought of you when he died and that venial sin that you thought it was worth it to commit. Or telling a lie that you find expedient. You think it's not a big deal and it suits you to tell a lie. And Jesus Christ died for that lie. He hung on the cross for three hours thinking of your lie. Like Peter, Jesus Christ turns and looks at you when you choose to commit that sin. If we think of this, if we would think of this every time we chose to commit sin, how much fewer sins would be committed? Like Peter, when he denied our Lord, and it's said in the Gospel that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And it was at that moment that Peter went out and wept bitterly. If we would take this to heart and think that Jesus Christ 
thought of all of the sins that you would commit and that I would commit and that these contributed to him shedding his sweat of blood in the agony, I think we wouldn't give our divine Savior a slap on the back and say, good job, Jesus, keep on suffering while I enjoy my extra hamburger or my little lie or my detraction or whatever the case may be. So this is a good time in Advent to say, is my heart full of myself? If I act in that way, if I commit any deliberate venial sin, it means I do not love God with all my heart. You do not love God with all your heart if you commit deliberate venial sin. You love yourself more than God. You may like to call Christ your king, but in reality, you are your own king, and you treat Jesus Christ like a super politician. You like to think of him as in charge and call him your king, but when it comes down to it, you disobey him. So in practice, you treat him as though you were his king, and he suffers for your sake so you can enjoy enthronement on the throne of your own will, on the throne of your own self-love, on the throne of your own ego. Now, I say this not only for you, I say it for myself. This is why Holy Mother Church, like a good mother, is patient with us. But it's important for us to take this season of, of Advent to heart. We need purgation. We need to empty ourselves of this selfish self-will by which we choose to bargain with the blood of Christ. We spend heavenly treasure in order to achieve worthless, temporal, apparent good, which we have no right to. The things of this earth are worthless compared to the blood of Christ. Eternity can never be compared to time in its worth. And when we appear before our divine judge, who is a terrible judge, we like to call him merciful all the time because it suits us and it appeases our consciences which are guilty because of the sins they commit against him. He is merciful now and he will be just when we appear before him in all the nakedness of our souls with no defense attorney there to plead our cause. We should prepare for that moment by treating his blood with the respect that it is owed, that we owe it. Jesus Christ has a right to your friendship and your love, not in the same way that an earthly friend has a right to it. In this life, you can say, I content myself with doing no harm, with being charitable to others, but I don't have to befriend others. I don't have to take their desires into consideration. That may be true for others. You're only called to love others as yourself, but you're commanded to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. It's not a recommendation, it's a commandment. And upon that commandment depends your salvation. Another thing to do in Advent is to pray, and to pray well. The spiritual authors tell us that unless we pray, we will be damned. He who prays will be saved, and he who does not pray will be damned. Christ himself said, Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it is opened. Now what our Lord implies there, and what the saints have assured us, is he who does not knock, it shall not be opened to him. He who does not ask, 
shall not receive, and he who does not seek shall not find. During this season of Christmas, we often see the wise men placed in the back of the church and gradually they reach the creche. The wise men offer us more than an aesthetic lesson. He who seeks Christ from afar in the darkness of this world by the light of the star of Christ's truth and really seeks to go to the destination desired for him by his Savior will be saved. He will be rewarded with the Christ child. But they must seek him because the men of Bethlehem and Herod thought of Jesus as nothing more than an inconvenience or an oddity which aroused their curiosity, whereas the shepherds who were vigilant in the night at their duty of state and the wise men who sought him from afar were rewarded with the presence of Christ himself. The Christmas tree also offers us an important lesson for Advent. The Christmas tree also is more than an aesthetic symbol representing this holy season. The Christmas tree, in a certain sense, represents your soul and my soul. It should be bedecked with the beauty of God's grace. It should be evergreen, despite the fact that all the trees around it in the winter lose their leaves and turn dead. They die. The evergreen, just like the palm tree, the palm tree and the cedar are two of the most frequently referenced trees in Scripture. And both of these trees the palm tree and the cedar of Lebanon are evergreen. No matter what the weather, no matter what the conditions, a palm tree stands fast and maintains its greenness. And so does the evergreen, like a cedar or a Christmas tree. This, is the, this should represent the state of the beloved soul of Jesus Christ, that despite all exterior circumstances, they do not cower, they do not lose their hope. Green is the color of hope. But they stand fast in the love and the expectation of Jesus Christ. If we imitate this image of the tree, and we stand fast despite the cold winds of this life that blow so harshly upon us today, all of the odds are stacked against us. But if we stand fast in hope, and in charity, we can expect the gifts of grace and truth to be given to us. That's why we have Christmas gifts. They represent the gifts that Christ brought to those who expected him faithfully, like the evergreen, the gifts of grace and truth. And so let us seek to earnestly empty our hearts during these remaining days of Advent, to empty them of their selfish weak excuses, the mediocrity that we all become so accustomed to, the taking for granted of the friendship of Jesus Christ, who has a right to our friendship, who has a right to our reverence and our respect. And let us seek to please him and to do his will and live the rest of our lives for his sake, avoiding all deliberate sin. It's impossible for us to avoid all sin, but it is possible with God's grace, if we ask for it, to avoid all deliberate sin. And it is deliberate sin that offended Christ so much in his passion. He knows we're weak. He, knows, he remembers our frame. He knows we are dust. But dust itself has been promised God's help to avoid deliberate sin, should that dust correspond and seek with generosity 
to pursue holiness. Let us ask for the Holy Family to accompany us and to assist us in making sincere efforts at avoiding all deliberate sin and emptying ourselves of our selfish attitudes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.